Our guest today is best-selling author and founder of consultancy Change Meridian. She works with leaders, teams, and organizations to accelerate progress and keep them ready for the future of work. Look, she's worked with many of Australasia's biggest companies and has experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly of change at the front line. In our discussion, we deep dive into the future of work and what it means for leaders, teams, and team members alike. How the traditional organization chart should be thrown out the window. We also get to chat about Michelle's latest book, Bad Boss. What to do if you work for one, manage one, or are one. If you're thinking about what you need to do to future-proof your organization, its people, or your own career, this podcast with Michelle Gibbings is the one for you. Okay, Michelle, uh, we'd like to kick off with a few fast facts about, about you. Tell me, are you a breakfast or a dinner person? Breakfast, absolutely. Favorite meal of the day. Right, so you're an early starter? Uh, look, it, 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 it varies, it varies. Right. Depending on what's happening? Yeah, if I'm writing, I as in writing books, I'm up mm-hmm. at 4am, but typically I'm up at 5am. Right, it's 5am to sleep in. Yeah, 5am to sleep in. (laughs) Lucky you. Uh, Are we most likely to find you in trainers or heels? Oh, interesting. Heels during the week, but trainers on the weekends. Ah, that's good mix. That's good mix. And on holiday, would you be bungee jumping or lying on the pool lounger? Oh, somewhere in between. I have bungee jumped. And I do like lying around the pool, but I'm one of those, I'm very active. I can't sit still for too long. Okay, good to know. And uh, you're obviously an author yourself, and do you prefer to, when you're reading, are you electronic or do you like a real book? It depends. I read what I call trash on my Kindle, and then I Mm -hmm. read books that require deeper thought in hard copy. Hmm, Why's that? Because the way our brain works, we actually often learn better when we're reading something that is hard copy and also being able to, you know, scroll and take notes. There is something the way our brain works in the electronic medium that sometimes impedes learning. Yep, have uh, observed that. Okay, now this is a pretty crucial question. Cats or dogs? Oh, dog. Absolutely. I have Barney at my feet as I'm talking to you. Great. Okay, this uh, this interview can continue now that you've selected dogs. Well done. Um, and finally, entertainment. Would you likely to find you watching a thriller or a comedy? Ooh, see, I like all genres except horror films. Uh, I'm I'm just about with you there, actually. Yeah. Like, like uh, a bit of a blend. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Uh, avoid the horrors as well. Good choice. Okay. Now, Michelle, uh, you're now. Uh, global guest speaker, you're an author, you um, facilitate and lead change in corporates, you work with execs. Um, What did you think you were going to be doing when you grew up? Well, when I was in primary school, I wanted to be a member of Charlie's Angels. Oh, Um, yes. (laughs) Now, I'm dating myself because I'm talking the 1970s, you know, Jacqueline Smith um, version of Charlie's Angels. And then I went on, I wanted to be a freelance journalist for National Geographic. And yeah. then, I, then I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And so it's interesting because I look at my life now and I think half of the Charlie's Angels bit, you know, I do a lot of travel with the work that I do. And mm. a lot of the work that I do also involves learning and sharing knowledge. So the aspects of wanting to be a teacher and wanting to be able to travel the world have been blended together. Nice. Um, so tell us, where did your where did your kind of business journey start? Uh, I had twenty five years in corporate, and you know, I did lots of different things through my corporate career. I worked in corporate affairs. I worked in risk and compliance roles. I worked in executive advisory. I 
ran large-scale change programs. Mm -hmm. And then I got to a point in my career where I was in a role which the environment just wasn't bringing out the best in me. And I went on a meditation retreat and I came back from the meditation retreat and I said to my husband, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, done with what? I said, done with corporate. He goes, great. What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to open a business. And he goes, brilliant. In what? And I said, I've got absolutely no idea. <laughs> and that was six years ago. And I mean, right. I, when I say it, I laugh a bit. But at the time, I, I knew my corporate life in that guise was, was done. I didn't want to go back into a corporate environment. But I loved learning. I loved being challenged. I loved sharing ideas. And you know, a really great piece of advice early on from uh, a friend of mine, and he said to me, Michelle, you've never run a business before. So one, you don't know whether you're going to like doing this. And also you don't exactly know what area you want to play in because you've had such a broad corporate career. Yes. So to be open, particularly in that first year, to where it may lead you, don't be too fixed. And that was great because as I look through the work that I've done, it has certainly evolved. And I'm really clear about the space I now work in, what I'm good at and what I do, and therefore very easy to know what I now say no to as well. But in the early days, there was experimentation around the type of work, type of companies that I worked with. And you know, I, I, it's been a really interesting, it's been challenging. I consider myself also really blessed in terms of the work that I get to do now. And, and give us an insight, what does a, an A-class client or an engagement look like for you? So I do work with both governments and with corporates. And I work with leaders and teams, but I also do the one-on-one -on -one work. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the work that I'm doing with teams and with leaders is very much around helping them be the best possible team that they can be, how they work together, the dynamics, how they connect, how they engage. Um, and then when I'm doing the work with individuals, there's two lenses. It's leaders who have often stepped into, you know, the first time into a, you know, a senior management or an exec role, really helping them land that role well and understand the type of leader that they want to be. And then I'm often doing the complete opposite end, which is people who come to me and say, I hate my job, get me out. So I, I do breadth of work and often people say, you know, you do lots of different work. I go, yes, but it's all couched in the context of creating workplaces where people thrive and people do their best so that great things can happen. And for that to happen, you've got to have good cultures, good team environments, but you've also got to have the right people doing the right stuff. And that then means that sometimes people need to leave organisations to get to an organisation that is the place that brings out their best, that enables them to be who they are, that enables them to contribute in a way where they feel valued, but I, they also know that they're able to deliver their best because they can be who they need to be. Absolutely. And Michelle, interesting when you talk about the style or type of leader you want to be, can you give us some more insight? Is this a... Um, here's a choice of six, which one are you going to be? How does that work? There's no cookie-cutter approach to any of this. And, you know, there's so many leadership books. And if you look at the thousands upon thousands of leadership books, you know, there's lots of leadership models and lots of leadership styles. And for me, often this is a very organic approach to go really dig into who are you? What do you want to stand for? What inspires and motivates you? And what brings out the best in you? 
and what is it that you want to leave behind and what do you want to be known for? And so to me, it's a process of discovery and you don't do it in one conversation. It takes a really long time for people to work out, well, actually, this is who I am. And that evolves because your identity as a leader shifts and changes through experiences that you've had. Um, and, you know, and I look at just even my own personal example of what I thought a leader was when I first started to the type of leader I wanted to be and that I was towards the latter stage of my career. It changed as I evolved as a person and understood myself better and also understood the subtleties of human interaction and dynamics. And so for me, I think it's really easy to say, here's the characteristics of what I want to be. But then it's almost you're trying that on and going, well, is this fitting? Does it suit? How do I feel about this? How are people reacting? And so you're still always authentically you, but you're shifting some of the edges and sharpening and refining some of those those points as well so that you can be your best and therefore bring out the best in those around you. Mm -hmm. Nice. And you mentioned you do a lot of work with people that are moving into first-time management or exec roles. Um, how do you how do you help them start that journey of success as a leader? It's understanding the environment that they're in as well. So I always say to people, at the end of the day, you can't understand others if you don't understand yourself. You're influenced by the environment that you're in and just as others are influenced by the environment that they're in. And so when they're in a leadership role, I need to understand the context of the environment that they're in, the stakeholders that they're working in, the challenges that they're facing and the opportunities that are in front of them. And that's why I was saying before, you know, there's no cookie cutter approach because sure. every person you're dealing with is unique. They're bringing unique challenges. Um, what I bring to the table is not just sort of tools and tips and methodology and all of that kind of stuff, but all of the many years that I spent in corporate as well. And that's what I often find when people are working with me is they want to hear, well, when you're in that type of situation, what did you find worked? You know, what were the challenges that you had? So I think that having been in their shoes, it makes it much easier to understand the challenges that they're facing and therefore what are the opportunities that they can do to shift how they're responding to what's going on for them. Because often what happens is people find themselves, particularly when they get to exec levels, and there's high pressure, high pressure, big expectations, often they're working with very challenging bosses and it's getting them to understand how they manage that dynamic of that relationship. How much of it is them pushing back on things? How much of it is going, actually, I just need to let this ride because it doesn't matter. And how much of it is them going, actually, no, this isn't acceptable. And these are the things that I need to push back on. Sure, sure. Uh, and Michelle, you're uh, currently the author of two books and about to release a third. Your first one being Step Up, Influence at Work. And I guess that uh, dives into some of the detail about some of those things you're talking about. Leaders finding their individual voice, uh, learning how to deal with different people in different situations. It is. And it was also when I first wrote it, I, I used to be a head of compliance many years ago. And when I was appointed into the head of compliance role, what I found was that I was working with a lot of people who were very good at the technical aspect of their role. They understood all the technicalities of regulations, but they weren't good building relationships, stakeholder engagement, understanding how to negotiate outcomes because they took a very literal approach to everything that they were doing. And so the book was very much around how do you help people who are technically brilliant 
but not good at influence. Because what happens, particularly in big organisations, your technical skills will only get you so far. There's a certain point in which those ability to build relationships, connect with people, to influence and negotiate outcomes often becomes more important than your technical skills when it comes to getting things done and to your own career success. And so that was the context in which that book was written. Right. And can you share with us one of the uh, stories from the from the book around someone who had come from that very technical background and how you help them evolve and, and become more of a well-rounded leader? Sure. And, and look, it comes back to getting them to really understand themselves. And it's interesting when you talk about concepts like influence. People think, well, I need to influence the other person. Often you need to influence yourself because if you don't understand how you're seen, how you're reacting when things aren't going your way, what triggers you in conversations and in interactions, it's very hard to maintain influence. And it's also getting them to understand power dynamics in organisations. And so one of the critical things that I get people to do, um, and with this particular individual, they were very good at a particular technical aspect of their role. And they were looking to get something changed within this particular organisation. But they hadn't even done basics in terms of looking at the stakeholder landscape, what perspectives people were taking on different issues. And their view was, but we have to do this. This is just for the way, this is what the regulations are telling us we have to do. And I'm like, well, yes, there are regulations that are telling you what you have to do, but it's going to make it more difficult for you if all you're doing from a relationship perspective is saying this is exactly how it needs to be what you need to do is understand the perspective of the stakeholders that you're dealing with where they're coming from what their pressure points are and what their agendas are and what does this mean for them on a personal level and so it was actually getting them to shift how they had conversations with people to spend time getting to know them on a personal level rather than every time they would go into a conversation it was work first never get into a conversation and do the chit chat and everyone's but the chit chat doesn't have any value and I said actually it does um and I said and you need to have you know you need to know about their kids and whether they like a cat or whether they like dogs and it was interesting it took them about a year but over a year they completely started to shift how they engaged with people that shift in the engagement then started to shift how people saw them from being this sort of technocrat to being someone who wow this person actually really spends time understanding the business and so we now see them as someone who really helps us yeah they're making sure we do all the right things they're sure. giving us really good guidance yep. but they understand the business challenges that we're also facing and mm. so we see them as someone that we want to engage with and so we're going to them proactively rather than us being forced to have conversations with them so it shifted the nature of the relationship because that person had changed how they communicate with those stakeholders. It's how to start binding a team, right? It's not us versus them anymore. It's like us collectively. How do we, yes, stay compliant, stay within the law, do what we need to do, but also help deliver on our business objectives. And it's also recognising, you know, we're all humans and, you know, everyone thinks, oh, but people make decisions factually and rationally. No, we don't. <laughs> we make decisions all the time based on emotion. So really understanding the person sitting in front of you, what's really motivating them? And often, you know, sadly, people can be motivated by self-interest. They don't want 
to look bad. They don't want to be put into a situation where they're going to have their ability to make decisions taken away from them. So look at all of the emotional factors that could be influencing the person who's sitting in front of you. And then if you can get a team operating in that mode where everyone at the table is giving consideration, of course, to their own position, but also uh, how everyone else in the team is, is operating, uh, then we're starting to... Uh, lead in the direction of a high-performance team. Yeah, absolutely. And also recognising that everybody's an individual. You know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they said, oh, you know, we're about to hit this really tough, challenging period and I need to have some strategies up my sleeve to really help make sure I can maintain the level of engagement but also the, you know, the well-being of the team. And I said, that's brilliant. And I said, so what strategies have you come up with? And they said, well, I thought you could give them to me. I said, yeah, I can. I can give you some ideas. I said, well, what do you think they need? And the person, a bit of silence. And then I said, so have you spoken to the people in your team? Uh, no. I said, wouldn't that be a good place to start? What do they need? And then recognise that they're individuals. So what I need, what the person beside me needs, what the person beside them needs will be different. And I think what often happens when we look at a team is we see a collective and we go, we're going to do this for the team. But every individual around that table might need something slightly different. And that's a challenge for leaders if they're really busy, they spend half their life in meetings, and so they try to do things quickly. I know I need to do something, but I need to be quick about this because I don't have time. And so let's look for something that's a broad brush approach that does everybody all in one sweep. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that because we don't have a relationship with a team. We have relationships with individuals. And relationship with individuals and then our uh, culture and our organisation is most influenced by the people that we or interact with, uh, with immediacy. Um, and this idea that uh, a culture is one thing for an entire organisation. If you've got a, an organisation of two or 5,000 people, um, they experience culture in the team that they work in. They don't experience culture as a group of two or 5,000. Oh, so, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah. And so it's the subcultures within cultures. You know, I've worked in environments before where the external environment outside the team has been really challenging, but we had an amazing culture in our team because it wasn't just me putting in effort, everyone in the team put in effort to make that culture as good as it could possibly be. So we would all come to work, support each other, work together effectively, knowing that the environment around us was hard but we'd get through it because we work together. Yes, yeah, and that helped uh, bind teams together when things are challenging and difficult. If everyone's uh, got each other's back and these high levels of trust and psychological safety, that's what uh, helps those kind of teams perform really well in tough situations. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're seeing a lot of uh, work around the future of work and how things are changing, and I know you've tackled this in your second book, Career Leap, about being fit for the future of work. Can you give us maybe a little, little synopsis of your view, Michelle, of how the work environment is, is changing and what we're likely to see going forward? I think the challenge with what we hear, particularly through media outlets, is there's a lot of data out there that concentrates on the negative. So we hear, you know, robots are coming to steal our job and, you know, 30 to 40% of roles are going to be obliterated mm. and there are there's no doubt that automation robotics artificial intelligence machine learning all of those um, aspects of technology are shifting and changing how we work i would also argue how we work has changed over you know certainly through my lifetime has continued to change and will continue to change um, i always go back to the mckinsey global institute 
report which was released back in 2017 so it's a couple of years old but at that stage when they did their research and it was global research covering about 80 percent of the global workforce and they found that with current available technology only five percent of roles could be fully automated but up to 60 percent of roles could have up to 30 percent of their work automated so pretty much anything that's can be turned into a process, can be given to a machine. But what we know through all of that is it's the highly repetitive tasks that get given for somebody else. The tasks and the work that is deep thinking, creative, human-to-human -human connection, they're all the things that won't be able to be automated. So our new digital automated world prizes curiosity it's learning adaptability it's you know the fastest growing occupations are requiring higher level cognitive skills yes. and greater emotional intelligence all the things that we used to think in the past as soft skills are the things that are actually becoming more important for us and the great thing with soft skills is they are all things that can be learned so just as you can learn technical skill you can learn a soft skill and so the important thing for people in whichever industry profession or occupation they're in is to you know you need to focus on the present and do your current job well but have your eye to the future what's changing what do i need to understand about the work that i do and how it's going to be impacted by a changing nature of work in terms of the technology and how do i make sure that i'm maintaining and continuing to uplift my own skills and capabilities so i'm ready for what the future holds so we know that work is changing in terms of the what we do but it's also the how so you know earlier on when you were talking about um the changing nature of work and the gig economy and all of those those types of things our nature of our employment relationship has changed and so the increasing in contractor workforce and flexible workforce and we hear like you know apart from the gig economy you've got terms like moonlighting um so side hustles people mm -hmm. having jobs on the side so there's a lot of difference in types of the employment arrangements and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's not so good sure and i think the uh change historically is that it used to be very much a command and control type structure in organizations uh, there was a very defined hierarchy uh, both on paper and uh, in the office uh, or on the construction side or the, the workshop floor, wherever it might be. We're seeing a lot of evolution now into much more flexibility into what that looks like. And I think the even the role of leadership is, is getting broader. Leadership's no longer the, I'm in the top box and I've got these names reporting to me. It might be that I'm, I'm now leading a team that's made up of all those cross-functional and, and different people. How do, we, how do we think about evolving our leadership skills to deal with that kind of environment? I think the interesting thing with all of that as well, and you know, certainly you've seen organisations like ING and in Australia ANZ, um, which are moving to you know, those agile workforces and people are in tribes and squads and... Mm. And it's interesting because there's a lot of new terminology that is out there. At the end of the day, people are still reporting to someone. What's different is that the person who is your boss may not always be your boss. So that reporting line is much more fluid. People talk about the role of the middle manager disappearing entirely. I think the challenge with some of this as well is in organisations, people like to be part of a team. 
They like to know what they belong to, who they connect with. They like to know who's making decisions about, am I getting promoted? Am I getting a pay rise? Who's doing my performance review? And, you know, countless research and just even anecdotal feedback. People don't like matrix reporting because it's confusing. We don't know who we report to. So therefore, who's going to be making an assessment as to whether I've done a good job or not done a good job. So all of those kinds of things. So I think as a leader, when you're working in that environment, you need to be conscious of the impact that some of this uncertainty is having on the people around you. Because people like to go, I know who I need to go to if something's not working. Who's giving me in the moment feedback about what I'm doing? And so as a leader, there's a much more often flatter management structure. So it's taking away a lot of the layers, which, you know, and often that can be good because it means decisions can be made faster. And it also means it's easier to get information flow. So you really know what's happening at the front line. But as a leader, you need to be adaptive. You need to be flexible. You need to be really aware of the impacts that these changes are having on the people around you and the uncertainty that it creates and so that you're spending time with people and if you've got a very dispersed workforce where you've got some people working from home some people are in the office some people might be in an offshoring center overseas then you might be using data programmers or coders and they're based in India or the Philippines Mm -hmm. and then you've got graphic designers who are in Eastern Europe so you've got this really highly dispersed workforce You still need to then rely on tools sometimes to manage the workflow on who's doing what, but also increased engagement. And what I see time and again is people are communicating through SMS and Slack um, or, you know, Teams and Yammer, and they're using all of these electronic means. And then when things go wrong, they'll sit back and go, oh, look, this just relationship, this is just blown up. I go, well, when was the last time you picked up the phone and spoke yes. to them? Uh, but oh, but I'm, I'm in contact with them every day. Have you picked up the phone and had a conversation with them? Mm-hmm. And so it's really critical as a leader don't forget face-to-face. And that doesn't mean you have to be in the same room, but it's so easy these days to be able to have face-to-face conversation through, through electronic mediums. And that connection piece is really important. And what happens when everything becomes electronic is we miss the banter, the connection, the feeling like we belong as part of something, the casual corridor conversation that you have with someone who says, oh, yeah, they see you and it triggers in them that's right, I needed to send you this. Or have you heard about the fact that X, Y, and Z is happening in this part of the business? I know you're working on something similar. You might need to connect with them. And so we're losing a lot of our connectivity that makes it harder to really understand how people are feeling, but also really know what people are working on. Mm. Yeah, on that note, a a large telco in New Zealand undertook a massive agile program removed you know essentially their whole middle management layer and uh the ceo uh at a presentation was at uh said look uh it certainly helped us with a lot of things that we can deliver things a lot faster we're more effective at our project deliveries etc etc uh but he said it set our culture back some some way and uh, i think that's you know the things you've just been talking about michelle and going uh, yes, uh, agile can help you get things delivered. It doesn't make your organisation any more human, and uh, we lose some of that 
uh, human functionality and actually the role of the, the manager is so often about driving, uh, you know, in a good way, a high performance culture. And if, you, if suddenly those people are not there, then the uh, impact culture is, can be uh, devastating. Yeah, and look, and also because you could have people who, with good intent, are working on stuff that doesn't matter because they don't understand the connection to the whole. Yes. And you'll have all these people beavering away and feeling like they're working really hard. Often as a business, you know, there's that critical question, do I really need to do this? If it's not bringing in revenue, what's the reason why I'm doing it? Is it adding to the culture of the organisation? Is it adding to our interaction with the community and how we engage and the longer-term benefit that we're driving into society? So why are you doing what it is you're doing? And if you don't know why you're doing it, ask the question. And if someone can't tell you why you're doing it, what would happen if you stopped doing it? Mm -hmm. I remember years ago um, I was working with a, an organisation and was a finance department and they had for years just been generating all these reports <laughs> and sending all this stuff out um, and we agreed. I said, just stop sending them yeah. and, see who, and see who screams. And they found that about 70% of the stuff that they were working on no one read and they just stopped doing it and and what was interesting is when i had first started talking to them the natural inclination had been oh we need to survey all our stakeholders and we need to ask them do they need this i said but if you just stop doing it then see what the you know there's a, a bit yeah. of a risk involved you gotta be careful there's obviously the ones you know that you definitely need to keep keep doing yeah. but it was really instructive around we start things we build processes and those processes just keep going long mm. after they added any value. Yeah, have seen that same thing in organisations again and again. And so often uh, someone's preparing a 20-page report and there's one number on their report that is really essential for people to see each week. And I think the challenge today, workplaces are so complex. You know, there's all of these, there's massive systems, lots of legacy systems. So in big old organisations, often people don't understand how the whole thing connects together. Then you're bringing new people in and systems and processes aren't documented. And so you get a lot of confusion and churn. And that's where the leadership and the team dynamic piece becomes so important. Yes. Because if you've got all this confusion and uncertainty and you don't have teams working together, understanding what's the value that we offer individually and collectively and what is it that we're here to do and how do we best do that, you end up spinning wheels. Sure do. Um, now, I came across one of your uh, quotes, which I was like, which was in talking about leading change. And you said, if you're not pissing someone off, you're not pushing the boundaries enough. <laughs> yeah, and on the opposite side, I often say to people, the person at work who most annoys you is the person you need to spend more time with. I like it. Tell us more. <laughs> if, when you think about organisations, often, you know, we tiptoe around and we want to yes. be polite to everybody. And yes. I absolutely agree. There's, a, you know, you don't want to be rude or belligerent and don't throw your power around or anything like that. But if everybody loves everything that you're doing every single day, if you're not making people a little bit uncomfortable when you're trying to make a change you really aren't going hard enough because yes. by nature change that has substance and real meaning makes people uncomfortable that doesn't mean you set out to go i'm going to make this uncomfortable as i possibly can but it is really recognizing that with change comes uncertainty and that's okay if you want to take your organization your team into the future the world is uncertain and that then means that around you as you make change there will be uncertainty there will be ambiguity there will be some people who respond faster than others 
all of that is okay. And I often say to people, we have this almost like a belief structure that when we're doing change, that team members feel as though they can't express fear or doubt or uncertainty. There's this sense of, oh, we're going through change, but don't tell anyone how I'm really feeling. Okay, that's so, that's not a healthy environment to be in. It's a much better environment if people can talk about, hey, this is how I'm feeling about this. Okay, so why are you feeling like that? Let's work this through. Let's see what what we can deal with, what we can't deal with, how much of this can we influence and control versus how much of this is out of our control, in which case, if we can't change that, how do you find a way to accept what's going on and make that work for you as best as it possibly can? And so all of this is really lots and lots and lots of conversations. And I see so many leaders stepping away from the challenging conversations that they really need to be stepping into. In the robust nature of conversations within teams is so important. I think the, it holds true that if every uh, team meeting or agile meeting you go to, uh, everyone's in a grants and nodding and, and smiling, you're probably not pushing the boundary hard enough for what you're trying to achieve. It's interesting because I do a lot of facilitation work and I do facilitation work with diverse stakeholders. So, you, you know, your aim in that environment is to get these two stakeholder groups who can't work together to reach some form of consensus. And so in that environment, consensus is good because you're trying to find of not the, the, the lowest denominator, but you're trying to find how do we make sure that people can find a way to work and move forward. But if you've got a team environment and you have consensus all the time, there's a problem in your culture. Because to me, it's an absolute red flag. People don't feel comfortable speaking up or people don't know how to raise issues in a way because they feel, oh, if I raise that, I'm going to hurt someone's feelings or it's going to feel confrontational. And so as a leader, what I always say, encourage spirited conversations conversations where there's energy there's passion behind them you know yes that might mean that it gets a bit uncomfortable and a bit messy but when you as a leader and as a group right at the beginning of working together have come together and agreed around how you respect each other how you work together and how you communicate with each other then it's okay because you've got ground rules you've set the ground rules for how you engage so therefore you know that when someone gets passionate about something that that's okay because you've agreed that that's how you're going to talk to each other in those types of circumstances love it it's uh, such a good time context for teams working together and we talk about teamwork should be hard work and we don't mean hard work as in every team meeting's um, just a horrible place to be. We mean hard work as in robust conversation, different points of view, really, really digging into how do we get the very best out of what we're doing or what we're trying to achieve. And that feels like really hard work because it's not uh, 100% consensus 100% of the time. And it's also the work where when you're in a meeting, you're in the meeting. If people aren't present, they clearly don't see the meeting as a good use of their time. Mm -hmm. And so talk about why do we meet? What's the value of how we meet? And how do we make these actually a good use of everybody's time? Mm -hmm. And I always remember, this was years ago, and I was quite early in my management career. And I remember thinking, oh, as I stuck my hand up, thinking I'm about to get my head shot off for saying this. But, you know, this person had set this meeting up. All these people have been invited from around the country to go to Sydney for this day-long workshop. <laughs> and I'd been there for about two and a half hours. And I said, look, 
I don't want to sound like the heretic in the room, but why are we here? And like the, this person was way more senior than me. And then everybody else around me, you could see them think, oh, thank God someone said something. Um, and then everybody but else. I'm glad said, it was here, not me. Yeah. And everyone, then everyone else said, yeah, we're with Michelle. We still haven't quite figured out why we're all here. Now, you know, in hindsight, it was probably maybe I could have been a bit more diplomatic and I should have pulled the senior leader aside and done an over morning tea, but I was getting frustrated because there was no clear agenda. Yeah. We were just, it was waffle. And I was yes. like, I cannot stand and be in this day for a whole day of waffle. This is going to drive me nuts. Totally. Good on you for jumping and jumping in and sound like exactly what was required. <laughs> um, now, Michelle, you've got a third book coming out, um, Bad Boss, I believe the title is. It is. Bad boss, what to do if you work for one, you manage one, or you are one. So it's not the, you know, point the finger and blame the boss. It's very much understanding that if you're in a situation where you're working with someone or for someone and the relationship isn't working, look at all the facets that contribute to that relationship not working, including what you bring to the table yes. and then work out what your strategies are to build a better path forward. Now that may mean that you come to the conclusion through the work that I can't change the situation, but the only thing I can change is leaving or how I respond to what's going on. Um, and so it's understanding yourself, understanding the other person and understanding the situation that's around both of you that's driving the dynamic. Mm. And I imagine there's plenty of uh, personal experience in that book as well. Lots of personal experience and lots of stories. Although yes. I do say at the beginning of the book, the names have been changed <laughs> to protect the innocent and maybe the not so innocent. <laughs> good, uh, good idea. And have you got a, uh, a favourite story from the from the book you can share? But there's lots of stories, but the one that I like is the use of humour. And so. Humour diffuses situations and, you know, often people think, particularly if you're working for someone who's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a bully and hard to deal with, you know, I've got to just remain really professional and I can't bat comments back. And, you know, for me, bullies respond to power and yes. bullies pick on people who they see as not speaking back. And there was this one situation where, um, you know, the CEO, you know, sort of stops into this person's room and he's really grumpy and he goes, oh, I've got a complaint to make. And this person just looks at him and smiles and actually laughed and said, I've had plenty of those today and actually I've got no, no more room for complaints and just smiled at him. And, she, and the person said, it was great. He didn't know where to go. He just went up. Oh, and sat down and then started to ask her how her day was. Yeah. And so because she didn't bite into his response, and she did it with a laugh and a smile, so she wasn't nasty back to him, sure. it totally diffused the situation. And the other one that's a really powerful story is a situation where a lady loved her boss, great relationship, he then leaves, gets a new boss, just can't figure this person out is at the point where she's saying to me I've got to go I don't like him I don't trust him I don't know how to work with him and then over time we worked out how her behavior and her working style needed to shift and change to accommodate his working style and what happened is as she did that he changed his style and so over it took about six to seven months she got to a point where she's like wow I really like him. I really trust him. She said, what I had done was I was comparing him to my old boss and thinking that what I do needed to be exactly the same because that's what used to work as opposed to going, what does he need? 
how do I work out how I can then work with him in a way that then works for both of us? And so I think what happens, we're very quick to judge people, very quick to box and very quick to categorise. And so often what we need to do is examine how do I shift and shape what I'm doing to meet their needs? Um, and look, and this doesn't mean that the boss doesn't play a key part in managing their response to situations and also the boss's boss. And so I talk in the book about how the organisation is a system. And so, you know, pressure gets pushed down. And if you don't have the ability in teams and within, in, within the individuals to manage that pressure valve, find ways to release and manage the pressure, it just eventually blows back up. If there's a leader that's not working, which is impacting a team, what's the leader of that leader doing to really understand what's going on? So it's never just that person's fault, fix that person, fix that issue. It's always much broader and more complex. And so that's what the book is very much about. There's three sections. You know, if you're in a situation where you think you've got a bad boss, if you manage someone who you suspect isn't quite working out as a leader, and then if you're the leader. And so even if you think you're a good leader, you'll still learn something from reading this because it's really helping you understand the relationship dynamic between the parties that make a system and an organisation work or not work. Nice. And Michelle, I'm sure uh, many of our podcast listeners uh, can identify with at least one of those uh, tracks in the, in the bad boss. Um, where can they get hold of a copy? Is the book released yet? What's happening? So the book gets released in May. I will be doing pre-orders from April. So okay. it will be available through all the normal online booksellers and local distributors in, term, in, in terms of bookstores. And also if people go to my website, michellegibbings.com, there'll be a, a webpage through that that people will be able to buy. Awesome. And Michelle, if people want to connect with you further, is michellegibbings.com the best place to go? It certainly is. Um, and I share weekly insights, so people can feel free to register for my weekly insights and mm -hmm. they'll get ideas and tips about workplaces, leadership, a whole raft of things about how do you progress in a complex changing world so that you can bring your best and whole self to work and life every day. Absolutely brilliant. Hey, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Business Leader Breakthroughs today. I'll be definitely grabbing a uh, copy of uh, Bad Boss. Sounds like some good things to learn. And I have been lucky enough to have a read of Step Up and Career League, your other two books. Uh, highly recommend those uh, great insights for people that are looking to shape their future careers and their future leadership roles. So. Thank you for being so willing to share your uh, insights and knowledge with us today. Really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. It's been fun.